The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined for the second time by Adam Tooze. Adam is Professor of History and Director of the European Institute at Columbia University. I spoke to Adam in episode 14 about his earlier book, The Wages of Destruction, The Making and Breaking of the Nazi Economy. Today we'll be talking about his new book, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, which is just out from Alan Lane. Initially, the intention was to just do one episode on the book, but it's such an incredibly detailed and wide-ranging work that it just didn't really seem right to devote just the one episode to it. So in a couple of weeks, there'll be an additional episode covering some of the topics we didn't get to talk about this time, including Brexit and the role of the City of London. As always, you can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast. And you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you like the podcast, you can, of course, rate or review it on iTunes. Uh, the podcast also has its own Patreon page. So if you've been enjoying the show, uh, please do consider donating. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Poll Theory Other. Before we started the interview proper, I briefly chatted with Adam about my own experience of reading the book. And I mentioned that despite it being a work of economic history, like his previous books, The Wages of Destruction and The Deluge, uh, I found it a much more challenging read, largely due to the difficulty I, I found of getting to grips with modern finance. So I hadn't really planned for my first question to be about my own economic illiteracy, but um, Adam gave such an interesting answer that I thought it would be uh, be good to leave it in. So the following is his response to to my comment. Yeah, I mean, um, obvious one at one level I regret that, but uh, at another, um, for me, um, well, I mean, there are, there are, there are sort of. There's a banal answer, which is, you know, this is a financial crisis, so it's going to be about finance. And the, uh, it was a journey of discovery for me as well, because my background is not in financial economics or finance. I could easily have gone into the city in the 1980s, graduating from Cambridge when I did and chose not to. So, you know, this is not my home turf. And it was, to be honest, uh, an education for me working on the project as well. But then the deeper I got into it, the more committed I became, because I, as I was, as I'm trying to show in the book, uh, what I what I think is happening um, is that if you like the frameworks of mainstream policy orientated economics are finally uh, catching up with the reality of globalized capitalism and the shock of 2008, which is just impossible to understand in the conventional frameworks of international macroeconomics. Uh, of the type espoused by somebody like Martin Wolf or Paul Krugman before the crisis, simply don't grasp uh, what is happening at that moment. And this unleashes a what I call a, a small revolution in the way in which mainstream 
monetary and banking economists think about the operation of, world, of the world economy. And so understanding that, getting to grips with it, and then actually organizing the narrative around the shock of this realization on the part of contemporaries and its consequences is really, for me, the the heart of the entire of the entire book, right? So, conveying why it is that the best and the brightest, especially in centrist liberal macroeconomics before two thousand and eight, mm. were anticipating the wrong crisis, the, the China what, crisis, you know, right? Exactly, which struck all of us at the time as the evident way to understand this, and this was the way in which parts of the left as well went about trying to analyze the decline of American hegemony. And there's plenty of essays in the New Left Review which employ exactly this framework. And there were people like Rajan, the Indian, you know, the bank uh, finance economist and then Indian central banker who wrote this quite good book, Fault Lines, which draws extensively on New Left writing, including essays by Strake, which formulates, you know, a kind of crossover version of this argument. And it's a powerful diagnosis of imbalances in the global economy. And it's conceivable that we could have some version of that crisis in the future. It's just not what happened in 2008. And understanding why not and what it means that that is not what happened and figuring out what was necessary to stabilize a crisis of this rather different kind, namely a essentially a global bank run, an implosion of interbank lending. And then figuring out the politics of that and extending that analysis then into the Eurozone crisis. Because if the left has been right in its diagnosis of the Eurozone crisis, that, that this was not principally a crisis of sovereign debt, that this was always all along essentially a crisis of the stability of the European banking system, of the financial system, then we need to apply an appropriate economics to analyze that. And the, the odd thing is how inconsistent many parts of the European left have been in doing that. Uh, which on the one hand, they'll you know roundly assert that essentially it was the European banks that were at stake rather than, say, Greece's feckless fiscal policy. And then, however, apply a macroeconomic framework, which leads you to conclude that if Greece is running current account deficits, then it's Germany, which is financing them by means of its surplus, which simply doesn't follow uh, if you understand the interconnection of the European banking system. And so creating a much more consistent framework of analysis um, is really the, and, and locating that historically as a product of this moment of crisis and this moment of crisis finally forcing us to come to terms with the reality of globalization, which of course we've been proclaiming, you know, it's one of the great cliches of the last 30 years that national economies are being superseded by a global economy dominated by private corporate actors. But our thinking about macroeconomics, systemic economic interconnection has not kept up with that. And macro finance, which is the label for this mode of analysis, is a major breakthrough in forcing us to think that way about the financial side. Of course, with regard to trade, there's been literature on commodity chains, value chains for some time now, which has already been undermining that national economy centered model. Um, so the reason the book is technical is in part because a crisis of economics is what the book is about. And the book is trying to think through the nature of that crisis, its political implications and recast the narrative in terms of a more solidly founded type of economics. So just to go back to the causes of the crisis in 07, um, I, th I think if you were to ask most people what caused the financial crisis, uh, the, the most common answer you'd probably hear would be the subprime mortgage crisis. Um, 
you know, so it was a it was a it was a crisis in the real estate market triggered by the banks holding huge numbers of bad assets. Um, whereas you argue that while um, while subprime might have triggered the crisis, the really important story was on the funding side of the bank's operations and not the uh, not the bad assets. Yes, I mean I think that's a that's a useful distinction is to think in terms of the two sides of a bank balance sheet. Um, you know, banks engage in multiple types of risk, and one of them is that they lend money to ventures which may or may not go well, and the other is that they fund that lending in various rather unstable kind of ways, and they make their money on bridging the risk in between the two. And this is an inherently fragile business model, uh, and um, it's subject to crises on both sides. Um, but if they manage, um, as they did, for instance, in the 1990s with dot-com, um, to offload the risks of investments in new technologies um, onto pension funds, long-term investors of various types, then you can have a sudden shock to the asset side of the economy. You can have a sudden disillusionment, if you like, the bursting of a bubble in which everyone realizes that assets have been overpriced. Without, with, with it causing a recession, it causes, if you like, a flu, a hangover, it causes damage to people's balance sheets. It probably will produce litigation, accusations of fraud. It will, in fact, expose that there has been fraud. But it doesn't necessarily and generally won't lead to a systemic crisis. Uh, and that is what happened to the US economy and the world economy in the early 2000s, is that the dot-com bubble burst. The losses were, in fact, larger than in the real estate bust of 2007-8. Certainly in the US economy, the first round losses were larger. But it didn't lead to an implosion of the economy or the financial system because the losses were actually held by investors who just absorbed the losses, took the hit, changed their investment and saving behavior and precipitated a recession. What we see in 2008 is something even more dangerous, which is the bursting of a bubble, which turns out to inflict losses on the most systemically unstable bit of the economy, which are banks. And then add to that the fact that the banks had themselves undergone a transformation since the 1980s and adopted an increasingly risky form of funding. Now, any kind of funding, whether it's deposit-based or short-term borrowing, is risky because it involves maturity maturation. You take money from depositors, say, say to them they can have it back whenever they like, and then you go and invest it in something which doesn't pay off for 10 years. That involved, incurs a risk. And we stabilize that by various types of deposit insurance to promise depositors they'll get their money back, whatever happens, and so they don't panic in a in a in a situation in a crisis situation. What the banks had done beyond their depositor base is adopt a whole a much more much more flexible and therefore also cheaper uh, form of funding, which was basically to feed optic pools of cash of liquidity that were accumulating because of the huge profitability of business because of the rising inequality in many of the world's economies, which created gigantic funds of money, which you know, had to be invested on, the, on behalf of immensely rich individuals, um, and used that money, much of it also then created through credit creation within the banking system, to plow that into long-term investment. And so we move from a system which is largely deposit-funded, at least as far as the high street banks are concerned, to a model in which almost all of the banks on both sides of the Atlantic are funding themselves in the manner of an investment bank. In other words, they don't have depositors, they just borrow money from other banks and other types of investors on short-term conditions, sometimes as little as overnight in the so-called repo market, you often borrow overnight. And hundreds of billions of dollars on the balance sheets of individual banks 
are being funded at incredibly an incredibly short term. So when a bank like that suffers a hit from bad news, telling its investors that many of the things it has invested in are losing value, it suffers the risk of a bank run of a speed, of a scale that we've never seen before. Uh, and that's really what began to happen from 2007 onwards. It doesn't look like a bank run because there's nobody queuing on a pavement trying to get their money out. But there was no deposits. So all that really needs to happen is that on any given morning, the counterparty that you're used to rolling over, say in Lehman's case, $180 billion a day, all the way through to the first week of September 2008, suddenly decides that they're not going to show up to renew their account, their uh, short-term funding arrangement with you. They didn't have to withdraw any money because they never deposited any money. They just simply suspend the short-term relationship that you've been involved in over many years. And that causes essentially, it's the equivalent of a gigantic into bank run, if you like, banks running on each other. Uh, and it was that, that that threatened to blow the system up in 2008. Another way of putting the same point is if you think about the housing market, how long it takes for prices to adjust, how long it takes for a foreclosure to go through. It's a prolonged agony, stretches out over six months, a year, 18 months, two years. Uh, and over that period, the bank has plenty of time to adjust. The families that are going through this, of course, are in hell. It's a, it's a nightmare, uh, but it isn't the kind of event in its temporality which produces the sort of crisis we were seeing in September 2008, where Lehman can go from being able to fund $180 billion one day to not being able to fund uh, you know, a single dollar, even on a bomb-proof piece of collateral like a U.S. Treasury, uh, the next day. Um, and that is a typical phenomenon of funding markets, not losses on the asset side. And the fact, and the fact is, to just finish the point, is that this is not an exclusively American thing, evidently, but a model of funding, bank funding, that was adopted all over the world, um, notably in the transatlantic economy, but also in South Korea and Russia as well. So a bank like Northern Rock can go bust in September 2007 with no subprime on its books at all. Uh, all it needs to do is to be dependent on short-term funding markets, uh, which are spooked by some other borrowers in those markets who are dependent on subprime. Um, and all of a sudden, Northern Rock is effectively suffering a bank run. How widely was it understood just how risky this funding model was and, and you know, how easily um, a crisis along the lines of what we saw in 2007 could happen? I think the funding side of it, um, you know, ought to have set off alarm bells. Um, but this is the story of the, uh, of, uh, the kind of collective mindset that emerged um, in banking circles, in regulatory circles, in financial eco economics uh, from the 1990s onwards. There was a profound belief um, that markets uh, would provide self-insurance, that no rational actor after all would engage in an activity that risked the sort of disaster that struck in 2007, 2008, um, and that the markets had priced in this kind of risk. And there are aspects of this which are difficult to understand from a purely, from the, from the point of view of, of a simple kind of uh, uh, calculative logic, um, why you would not take as collateral a treasury bill, which is a treasury bill honored, you know, uh, ultimately something, a draw on the American taxpayer, why you would not take that as collateral from Bear Stearns when it's effectively exactly the same treasury as you could get from JP Morgan at that moment. Um, 
it is not obvious that that's a, you know, it should be completely bomb-proof collateral. And it came as a genuine surprise that what in fact transpires in situations like that is that regardless of the quality of the collateral, you just don't want to be involved in a short-term funding arrangement with a bank that looks as though it's fragile. So people did not understand that you could have these massive discontinuous effects uh, where somebody went from being a perfectly good borrower to being completely outside the market in a matter of days, in fact, in a matter of hours. Um, people didn't appreciate the scale of risk that was involved in that kind of arrangement. Um, but one has to say that this is a, you know, uh, a, a, a massively self-interested system of ideas, of beliefs about the economy that emerged from the 1990s onwards and became more and more deeply entrenched. And right up until, right up until the very end, that consensus was being very heavily enforced by very powerful voices in the economics profession. I mean, fam most famously, perhaps, and um, you know, is Larry Summers' put down of Rajan's intervention at the 2005 Jackson Hole Conference, where Rajan is quite reasonably signalling to the kind of systemic risk that might be building up, and he's just described as a luddite by by Summers. You know, it's as though for fear of airplane crashes, no one would fly anymore was, was you know, Summers' analogy. And furthermore, it was explicitly political. In other words, uh, Summers was saying, if you, you know, this kind of scary talk is, is going to give people the wrong idea, they're going to start regulating things they shouldn't be messing with. Um, and of course, you know, these people are deeply entangled with the interests of Wall Street. So this is definitely interested, tunnel-visioned uh, thinking about, about the problem. And it has to be said, furthermore, that it has a sort of superficial rationality, right? So if you were able to hold the AAA rated mortgage-backed securities until maturity, if you were able to fully ride out the crisis with enough funding um, to be able to sustain the collapse in values that those assets suffered in 08, 09, and then come back and to carry on holding them, the vast majority of them turned out, in fact, to be broadly speaking, AAA type assets. But that's irrelevant, of course, in a situation in which you do need funding, and these were short-term funded businesses, and they are vulnerable to this kind of systemic collapse. This is an inherent risk in any banking system. It's something we've known about as a fundamental character of fractional reserve banking, of, mature, of banking with maturity transformation, and this system took it to an entirely different level of risk. On the question of the, of the scale of the crisis, um, I, I think, you know, if you asked most people, uh, at least in Northern Europe or the US, um, I'm sure the situation would look uh, quite different from, from Greece or Spain. Um, I, th I think most people would probably say that the, the financial crisis was not as significant as the Great Depression, um, whereas you argue that it was uh, a much more dangerous moment. Um, you've described it as, as risking an annihilatory implosion. Um, uh, could you explain why it was such an incredibly dangerous event and, and why it was a more, a more dangerous moment even than the um, stock market crash of uh, 1929? Well, it was such a dangerous moment because all of the major global banks were at risk at exactly the same time. So between 1929 and 1933, there were waves of bank failures in Central Europe and then in North America again and again and again. Um, but never in the history of capitalism have we had um, a concentration of, of crises of this type interconnected simultaneously, at in, moving at incredible speed and on vast scale across the core of the financial system. Um, so 
we've of course had major waves uh, of of crises which are structurally in some ways comparable to 08, say in the emerging market economies of Asia and Russia in the late 1990s, um, but uh, not at the core of the system. So whether you compare this to emerging market crisis of the late 90s or the Great Depression of the early 1930s, uh, there was really nothing to compare in terms of scale and speed uh, and interconnectedness uh, with what we were seeing at this moment. Of course, the, 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 the why this is um, is that um, the, the, the crisis was stopped. Um, but that shouldn't blind us to the, the scale of what was what was threatening. So in terms of uh, stopping the crisis, um, again, you know, the, the term quantitative easing, I think, is probably reasonably well known to people. But but I suspect not many people would be aware of, of what was really the, the core mechanism for stopping the crisis. Um, the uh, the central bank liquidity swaps the so-called swap lines um, that have their roots in the in the breakdown of the Bretton Woods era. Um, c- could you explain this this sort of uh, extraordinary mechanism for um, ensuring liquidity to to the world's banks um, and and how it was utilised to effectively uh, stop the crisis? Yeah, so so in a bank run, ever since the eighteen fifties, uh, we've understood that. What you need is a a lender of last resort, so a central bank that can essentially provide what banks in this situation need most, which is um, ready cash. They may be completely solvent banks. They may have a viable business model, but any bank, if it's confronted with a sudden run by its depositors or its short-term sources of funding, um, will die. It doesn't matter how viable it is. Um, And so what you need is a backstop. What you need is is an entity that will provide uh, cash in exchange for illiquid assets. Um, and this was the principle formulated by Badgett uh, in the 1850s in response to one of the arguably the first great global crisis of modern capitalism. Um, and the Bank of England provided that function for the city of London. Um, and what we see in 08 across the world in the first instance is central bankers doing precisely that. So the ECB, the Bank of England, uh, the Fed doing that for uh, their local banks on a very large scale. The, the ECB kicks into action already in August 2007 with an enormous uh, provision of liquidity to the European banks as they begin to feel the effects of the of the crisis. Um, but the problem in 08, um, as it emerged, is that the banking system, of course, had been massively globalised, and we've been saying this for decades. Uh, but the consequence of that, in the in the face of a bank run, is really rather dramatic because of what it means is that many of the European banks, in fact, almost all of them, had very large uh, currency mismatches on their balance sheets. So they had bought very large numbers of American assets and had funded those purchases either by borrowing in dollars, and that funding was no longer available for them any more than it was for their American counterparts, or more complicatedly, they borrowed euros or pounds or Swiss francs, translated those into dollars by means of swaps of various types, and then invested those in US uh, assets. And those funding markets were breaking down, as was the capacity to swap European currencies into dollars. And that meant that there was a very significant risk of the European banks offloading huge portfolios, hundreds of billions of dollars, about 30% of the final tranches of 
American subprime were handled by European banks. Um, there was a real risk of the European banks offloading those assets, which would have created a, fi a firestorm in the US. It would have produced a huge collapse in the value of those assets, would have negated any effort by the American central bank and the treasury to stop uh, the run in the United States. And so the Fed and the treasury are desperate to ensure that the European banks can gain access to as much dollar funding as they need. And the first mechanism to do this is simply to open the coffers of the Fed to the Europeans in the same way as they were doing for American banks. And from the fall of 2007 onwards, that's what they do. So the Fed provides liquidity on the same terms that all comers in New York and the European banks and some of their Asian counterparts, of course, have branches there. So that's how they get their dollars. But by the fall of 2008, one year into this operation, it's pretty obvious that the European banks simply don't have enough good dollar collateral in the United States to gain access to dollars. So what the Fed does is to mobilize a mechanism that had been used in the 60s and then periodically again on and off uh, occasionally in the 90s to provide dollars not to the, the private banks, not to Barclays or Deutsche Bank, but to the ECB and the Bank of England. And so they would then provide the uh, dollars that the Barclays and the Deutsche Bank needed um, uh, in London and in Frankfurt, respectively. And what this involved was a so-called swap in which the Fed basically took sterling or euro in exchange for which it then provided the Bank of England and the ECB with dollars. And um, it's a swap because you're holding each, other current, each other's currency. You agree the exchange rate and the period over which it's going to be repaid. There's some fee income that the Fed garners from, from this transaction because obviously it's a one-sided transaction, though it looks like a fair swap. It's the Europeans that need the dollars, not the other way around. Um, and uh, the Fed starts from December 2007, essentially providing the European central banks with the capacity to pump dollars on demand into their banking systems. And initially, this is limited. There's a kind of overdraft, which they agree. Uh, this is progressively expanded. It hits the $600 billion mark, $600 billion mark in September 2008. And then as the crisis really begins to ramp up into its highest phase with all of the banking systems convulsing by the end of September and the central banks and treasuries attempting to provide a massive response. On the 13th of October 2008, the Fed uncaps the swap lines to the ECB, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, Swiss national banks, the six banks. So they have an unlimited drawing right for dollars from that moment onwards. So in effect, they become, as one central banker said, the 13th branch of the Fed. They become an open-ended conduit for liquidity to their banking systems. Um, and uh, the Fed establishes itself as such at that moment, really, as the lender of last resort to the entire global banking system. I suppose uh, one can sort of imagine that, that had Donald Trump been sitting in Barack Obama's uh, place at that time, um, how horrified he might have been at the suggestion of doing something like this, um, especially given his view of, of America's allies as, as free riders, essentially. G given the um, the increased political polarization and, and the volatility of the American political scene, um, and also, as you point out in the book, given that the crisis management at the end of George W. Bush's term of office uh, depended on congressional support from the from the Democrats to bail out the banks, um, do you regard this as really a sort of one shot affair? Given the um, given the absence of, of political legitimacy for this sort of activity, well, I mean, I think in fairness to Trump, it has to be said that. You know, of all of all presidents in all in, in American history, he's probably the one most likely to understand the financial needs of Deutsche Bank. Um, I mean, Donald Trump 
uh, in 08 and 09 was not afraid to go on the record on Republican talk shows, on right-wing talk shows in America and vigorously defend uh, the bailouts, TARP, everything that central banks were doing. So, um, you know, in that counterfactual of what would happen under a President Trump, we have to reckon with the fact that the guy is totally pragmatic, a self-interested businessman who, in a moment of capitalist crisis, fully understands the need for government aid and was not afraid to say so. Uh, in 0809. Um, I suppose at that point, though, he doesn't have to worry about burning his political capital with the uh, with the with the Republican base. Well, this is the thing. The, 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 your point is a is a is an important one with regard to the more doctrinaire and ideological wing of the Republican Party. Um, and uh, there are, I think, indeed, very serious questions about how far um, they would provide uh, legitimacy for uh, an action like this. Um, so, as you were saying, already in 08, 09, uh, the Republican Party is basically AWOL uh, on the bailout. It uh, hands the poison chalice of the bailouts to the Democrats, um, and uh, who are then forced, if you like, to provide their votes for the Bush administration and its bailouts. Um, and there is, I think, at that moment, a profound question that opens up about global political economy. Um, which does revolve around the capacity of the American political system to generate the domestic political base for systemic stabilization of global capitalism, in which America, more than any other uh, actor, has an interest. It does better out of it than anyone else, Um, but which, of course, contains many other fragile components, chief amongst which in 2008 was the European banking system, which was definitely the weakest link and would have failed even before the American banking system did. So there is a a, a very major question here, uh, which ultimately means that the stability of the global economy does indeed hinge on the coherence or incoherence of of one of the two major governing parties of the United States. Um, And it's unclear given our present conjuncture and uh, events really ever since 08, um, whether or not that in any meaningful sense of the word can be taken for granted. So then the question, of course, is does any president simply cut a series of ad hoc deals, as Trump did last year, for instance, to stave off the possibility of a shutdown in the middle of hurricane season? He simply swapped sides and did a deal with the Democrats and then swapped back uh, to deliver the, deliver the tax cuts in December. Or whether, in a sense, you just keep this sort of action by the Fed so deep below the radar um, that... Um, it's never questioned. It never arises. It remains at the level of a technical, administrative, central banking action, which is how a defensive-minded central banker will justify and explain what happened in 08. This is just lender of last resort. We do it all the time. Would you want us to do anything else? No big deal. There's nothing to see here. Move on. And the third scenario is indeed the possibility of some kind of catastrophe uh, in which uh, we do have a systemic crisis and we see something more like what we saw with TARP at the end of September 2008, where ideologically entrenched elements in the Republican Party simply exercise a veto over uh, actions which are necessary for the stabilization of the global financial system. And, you know, there are moments like that subsequently, um, for instance, the the incredible brinksmanship of the the right wing of the Republican Party over the federal budget in 2011 and 2013, uh, the fact that they were willing to hold hostage, um, you know, on its face, essentially, small scale of legislation necessary to increase China's quota in the IMF so as to allow the Obama administration to 
justify itself to Beijing and say we're accommodating Beijing within the global economic order. That proposal was taken hostage by right-wing Republicans who wanted Planned Parenthood defunded because it, you know, it uh, does abortions. Um, so that there are definitely um, uh, the signs that of, of that kind of crisis and the possibility of that kind of crisis uh, in the record of the last 10 years. And one can easily envision that, that kind of thing happening in future. Regarding that, I suspect it's it's perhaps a, a mistake to personalise this and to make it all about Trump when it you know it reflects um, really deep rooted issues in the Republican Party rather than uh, the actions of any single individual. I agree. No, I, I do think for me that's an important point, uh, and arguably, of course, the the problems go back further. I mean, you can trace them back to the Iraq War, which was a very considerable shock to the Republican Party. Um, the incoherence of the war on terror, um, which turned out, of course, to be a disaster, and they understand it as such as well, deep down, that they may not want to say so in public, but they dissociate themselves from 2006 onwards when they lose Congress uh, very vigorously from the Bush presidency. You could take it back to the new Gingrich insurgency of the 1990s, uh, where you already begin to see this rabble-rousing, no-holds-barred, radical partisanship, the mobilization of alternative new media uh, behind that campaign. And arguably, it goes all the way back, really, to the entire resurgence of the Republican Party in the era of Nixon, where you begin for the first time to see this, you know, this extraordinarily fraught bargain on the one hand between the globalist Republican elite who are see themselves as one of the key political voices of American business and its interests, and uninhibitedly advocate a kind of globalist agenda on that basis. And on the other hand, the vote, the vote mobilizing strategy uh, with regard to the Republican base, which is uh, racist and nationalist. It's essentially the Southern strategy, which involves mobilizing, capturing the former Democratic Party voters in the American South who are being driven into the arms of the Republicans uh, in the wake of, civil, of the civil rights revolution. So from that moment onwards, arguably, you have this profound tension between a, a kind of globalist liberalism of the elite and a xenophobic nationalist, uh, um, uh, white, uh, more or less overtly racist politics on the base uh, that really just don't go terribly well together. NAFTA already, you know, it required heavy partisan, bipartisan work from both sides of the aisle to push NAFTA through. So this has been brewing for a while. And... Uh, Trump, I think the possibility of Trump um, is really is really prefigured in that in that deep attention. Um, I guess the UK Brexit parallel would be, uh, you know, sort of years and years of uh, relatively affluent conservative voters consistently voting in favour of social conservatism. Um, uh, and in return for their votes, getting uh, privatisation, market deregulation, and 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 during the the Cameron era, a, a significant degree of uh, of social liberalisation. Yes, yeah. I mean, I would have thought that the you know questions about how is how could Brexit possibly happen? You know, writing that chapter, which I have to admit was personally very difficult for me. Um, you know, I came to the conclusion that in the end, it really shouldn't have been all that surprising. I mean, this has been a problem brewing inside the the Tory party for decades. Um, and, um, you know, it was due to explode. It, after all, destroyed the major government uh, in the, of the early 1990s. Um, and given the problems uh, in Europe, um, given the given the additional pressures of the economic crisis, austerity, 
very large-scale migration and the utterly unscrupulous way in which that was used for vote-winning purposes. Um, I, I, I ended up feeling that it was, you know, that a narrow Brexit victory was was not really terribly surprising. Um, it certainly, for me, doesn't require that it be subsumed into some, you know, hand-wringing diagnosis of a huge upsurge of populism or something of that type uh, around the world at this moment. That isn't to say that there isn't an alarming rise of nationalist politics, but but it seems to me we have to get our analytical lens um, set, focused right. Just going back to the swap lines for for a moment. So, so you argue that the the swap lines and, and in fact the entirety of the the crisis fighting was always justified in terms of its sort of um, technical necessity and and that you know political decisions weren't in operation here. These it was just you know firefighting effectively. Um, whereas you argue that the extension of the swap lines was a a, a geopolitical decision. Um, could you could you just explain what the geopolitical outlines were, and and, and also when you say it's a political decision, is it simply um, you know we're going to provide liquidity to the to the central banks of of states that are our friends? Um, so it's a kind of soft geopolitics, or, or is it something more activist and and you know sort of decisively strategic um, that's done to achieve more concrete geopolitical ends? Um, the term was used to me by the central bankers that I talked to. Um, so it's kind of a native term. The central, I mean, I, I, I sorry, I, I take the force of the question you're asking, which is what are the boundaries of the geopolitical? When one says something is geopolitical, what does one really mean by that? What really struck me is that if you interview the central bankers about this experience, they'll tell you how uncomfortable, how uncertain it made them feel to be making these kind of decisions at this moment. What is clear, I think, is that coming out of the Asian financial crisis and the Russian crisis of the late 1990s, the globalist managerial class of the United States emerged with an acute sense that financial crises, interventions in financial crises, were a crucial to securing you know, the structure of globalization in which America was profoundly invested and be extremely sensitive in political terms. The damage done to the reputation of the IMF um, in the late 1990s should not be underestimated. Those weren't just critics banging on the doors from the outside. Those were to a very considerable extent internalized by the actors themselves who realized this was in a sense self-defeating. If your crisis fighting has the effect of undermining the institutions which succeed in crisis fighting, then obviously you're losing, you're losing the hegemonic game. And folks like Geithner are acutely aware of this, of this logic. So in 2007-8, what they're struggling to do is to devise a safety net for the global financial system, which secures America against excessive demands, doesn't make America into the dollar piggy bank for the entire global economy, um, secures America's key assets, its key investments around the global economy, and then provides, if you like, a sort of structured tiered system for others. And it's really a three-tiered system. It's not that, or maybe a four-tiered system. There's unconditional swap lines where you have unlimited amounts. There's conditional swap lines. There's countries which are referred to the IMF as a provider of finance. The IMF itself, of course, is dramatically beefed up uh, between 2008 and 2009. The, the significant outcome of Gordon Brown's G20 in London in uh, the spring of 2009 is a huge increase in IMF funding. And then the outer tier, the fourth tier, are countries which are basically left to their own devices. 
you don't do that without considering what the options are and how bad things can get unless you acted. And broadly speaking, the assumption is that, say, Russia, for instance, um, is perfectly capable of um, providing its own financial buffers because Russia is a country which accumulated very, very large um, foreign exchange reserves uh, in the in the 2000s. So if there is damage to the Russian financial system, it's not going to be systemically dangerous. Um, and uh, so that, if you like, I think is the tiering. But the, the central bank has said to me that you know, we realized this was you know, kind of outside our ordinary realm of activity. And we checked in with the State Department to ensure that you know, we had a green light on other relationships that we were, we were rolling out. Mm. So regarding Russia, would that also be true for India? Well, uh, India, I think, is a very interesting case um, because it was a big play of Bush foreign policy. You know, one of the few one could say kind of constructive elements of Bush foreign policy was attempting to construct a much stronger relationship between the United States and India. There was a lot of call because India is the largest democracy in the world and so on. So you would think of it as a strategic play. De facto, the Indian economy is just not a large enough piece of the global financial system its banking system is relatively insulated. It wasn't top of stack. South Korea is a much more vulnerable and in that sense more important entity in 2008 than India was from the American point of view. And this remains a sore spot. I mean, Rajan uh, you know, is the most vocal critic of Ben Bernanke in 2013-2014 um, because he's a sort of inside outsider. He's you know, a Chicago Booth School economist on the one hand uh, and on the other hand, uh, central bank president in uh, uh, chairman of the Indian Central Bank on the other, and so capable of articulating a critique of the of the impact of American central bank policy and sort of authorized, legitimated to formulate that in the way that really no one else is. But the response from the American side is show us the numbers, right? The reason why we did these, we provided these liquidity support actions in 0809 is that we can justify them in terms of the interests of the US economy. The, the risk of blowback here is very considerable, especially when you're talking about Europe. That's just not true for India. Moving on to the to the eurozone. So, so in the book, you describe the um, the incredible and, and seemingly self destructive drama of of Germany re- refusing to allow the European Central Bank to play the role that that the Federal Reserve was playing in the United States. So, um, unlike the Fed at the time, the the ECB's sole remit was price stabilisation rather than any broader economic uh, objectives. Um, um, there's the failure to recapitalize European banks. Um, uh, how do you explain this German resistance? Um, I mean, there's obviously the, the cliche of, of Germany's experience of hyperinflation during the 1920s, but that seems r- rather implausible. Um, why do you think it is that the Germans were, were just so resistant to taking the measures that were, were needed and that had, uh, you know, at least in their own terms, succeeded in the, in the U.S.? Well, I mean, it remains for me, I have to admit that even after writing the book, it's uh, the political economy of modern Germany remains to me one of the most puzzling elements in the global picture. And in fact, the book I'm currently planning to write next of started writing is a is a more focused study of Germany since unification, because I was left so deeply um, mystified, to be honest. Uh, but let me give you, as it were, my first take on on that um, and um, the argument that I offer in the book. And the, and, the, and the essential, as it were, first step is to insist that there is, in key respects, a deep rationality to the German position. Um, 
I mean, the Germans of anyone in the Eurozone are most willing to talk about restructuring Greece's debt, uh, inflicting uh, private sector uh, uh, involvement, so um, PSI, haircuts on banks, and periodically to propose that Greece should leave the euro. So from a, if you like, structural, radical, uh, solve the problem by means of just a kind of, you know, swords blow through the Gordian knot, Schäuble in particular is consistently uh, the most radical in that sense, as it were, clear-headed thinker about how to deal with the Greek problem. Restructure the debt if necessary, inflict some of the losses on the banks, and if none of this works, the Greeks should take a time out from the Eurozone. Right? This is this is the German position. Although this is the conservative German position. The problem is, of course, that there are considerable risks involved with that strategy. And this is where, to my mind, the inconsistency and the incoherence of the German position um, you know, becomes much more evident. Because if you're going to do that, what you need are safety nets. What you need to do is to make the European system proof against the fallout that's going to follow from that kind of uh, radical solution to the problem. And on this, the Germans are far less consistent. So if you're going to do that, what you clearly need to do is to authorize the ECB to buy bonds, as Draghi has been doing since 2015. And if the ECB is willing to do that on the scale that Draghi has been doing, you can practically have any type of political or indeed financial ructions within the Eurozone, and you will see barely a tremor in the bond market. Um, because the ECB just simply sucks up any available bonds that come up for sale, removes them from the market, stabilizes their price, stabilizes interest rates. So a debtor like Portugal, which you might think would be in really serious trouble, comes through 2015, 2016, despite the crisis in Greece, there's the, you know, the renewed phase of crisis there, uh, under pressure, but not facing a disaster. Um, the, even the Italian election result of, of earlier this year did not produce a disaster in the bond markets, of, uh, even in Italy, but in any of the other Eurozone countries because the ECB is fine. Now, if you had wanted to go down the route of surgically removing Greece from the problem or from, from the Eurozone and thereby cauterizing the problem, that would have been one way to go. And the Germans are profoundly reluctant to allow them to do that. Another thing that you would probably want to do is establish some sort of joint European funding mechanism, um, what, however structured, so as to pool uh, the ratings of the various European sovereigns, and this the Germans are fundamentally hostile to, for reasons which are more transparent. In other words, they don't want their good credit rating to be pooled with other people because it raises their funding costs. Uh, and Germany has been thinking about the federal fiscal problem, and we might come back to that, um, with regard to its own fiscal system ever since reunification in the 90s and really in a very concerted form since 2005. Solving fiscal Federal fiscal problems is one of the grand missions of Merkel's political career, and that starts inside Germany in 2005. And they arrive at a rather radical conclusion with the debt break in 2009. And so their plan is to extend that out to the rest of Europe, the Eurozone. And so any kind of euro bond pooling of sovereign credit rating is anathema to them. And then uh, the third thing that you would have expected the Germans to do if they were really serious about private sector involvement, about haircutting uh, the Greek debt, is to urgently push the recapitalization of Europe's banks. Because if you're going to inflict losses, uh, then you need the banks to be made bomb proof, uh, which is what the Americans were doing with TARP. And even within Germany, 
but the Germans are lackadaisical about refinancing uh, and forcing recapitalization on Germany's banking system. Uh, at the, Europe, the, the European level, there is absolutely no urgency. So to me, the story is one of a kind of uh, clarity on the one side about what needs to be done, which is why you can get, for instance, you know, a strange alignment between somebody like somebody like Yanis Varoufakis and Schäuble on the other side, who actually kind of understand each each other's positions, but an unwillingness on the part of the of the Germans to go the extra mile and say, well, okay, if that's the solution, that's the clean solution that we want, then we've got to do these other things. And to my mind, therefore, the eurozone crisis is, you know, dictated not by German power alone or by some kind of sleight of hand by which. The interests of European banks are shuffled off stage so nobody can you know, reveal, see them whilst we focus on the sovereign debt crisis. It's much more a train wreck, fundamentally, of conflicting visions, which no one is able to effectively coordinate over a period of years and progressively thereby raises uncertainty, culminating then in the summer of 2012. But Germany is key to the story, but not in the sense of the all-powerful actor, which has a clear idea and imposes it, but in the sense of a veto power that has a pretty incoherent set of strategies that it wants to pursue, um, uh, and which is able, uh, rather than you know, rather than pushing a coherent agenda of its own, effectively obstructs moves which would enable bits of its agenda to be realised more uh, more safely. What this implies is that the relationship between economic and financial policy making in Germany, and what you might take to be corporate banking interest, um, is far far more complex than it appears to have been in the US in 08, or rather that the business of articulating, organizing, coherently formulating what you would think of as being, you know, the enlightened self-interest of German capital functions, if it functions at all in Germany, in a much more opaque and roundabout way than it did in the US at the moment of crisis in 08. This for me is one of the real, if you, especially if one's coming at this with, you know, from the background of a Marxist state theory. Uh, or a kind of critical politics is the fundamental question here. In 08, what we see in the US is a totally unbalanced, oligarchic, elitist, if you like, crisis fighting strategy, but it works in its own terms. If you're trying to stabilize the kind of banking crisis that we were seeing then, broadly speaking, they do what you'd expect them to do. And furthermore, on October 13th, Paulson, Bernanke and Geithner corral all of America's banks, bang their heads together, or rather thump the table and say you are all taking extra capital and do not argue because we'll send the regulators after you tomorrow and the markets will punish you if you don't. Now, that is a remarkably concerted act of management. You could say it's you know the American state taking charge of driving the show, but of course, who is the American state at this moment? But you know, an economist from Princeton, a civil servant turned friend of Citigroup, Tim Geithner, and Hank Paulson, who's the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, sitting opposite his immediate former colleagues, you know, who three or four years ago he would have had regular business dealings with and socialized with as a, as a business peer. So what the very least we can say is the spectacular articulation and coordination of the interests of American capital around the American state, articulated, coordinated by American government at that moment. And my diagnosis of the Eurozone crisis is that far from the resolution of the Eurozone crisis being a European version of that, in other words, some you know, sadistic scheme on the part of European capital to force one-sided adjustment down the throats of European taxpayers. In fact, it's a train wreck. 
Uh, neither the interests of the European uh, uh, working class or uh, the European electorate and taxpayers, nor the interests of European capital are in any effective way um, articulated at that moment. So it's much more like, if you like, the political economy of the Great Depression of the early 1930s, where in retrospect, there's so many options, so many win-win options in which every conceivable class interest could have been better off as a result of creative and effective coordination of policy. Um, it's much more like that in Europe than what we see in the US, where, you know, um, as you were saying earlier on, many people will say, well, actually, it was kind of near miss, right? This is more like the Cuban Missile Crisis or something like that. We can easily see how this could have been a total disaster. But in fact, we managed. In the Eurozone, uh, on the periphery, we have levels of unemployment immediately comparable with the Great Depression. Greece's experience is ever been as bad as any economy in the Great Depression. And Italy's prolonged period of crisis now is, is devastating for that society, that, for, that, uh, for that economy and that political system as well. So that, for me, is the key here. And this is the real puzzle as to why it was the interest could not be effectively enough articulated within the framework of the Eurozone, not why you know, a very lopsided policy was effectively invented by one very powerful and far-sighted strategic actor. How much do you think this is a, a sort of cultural question? Um, I mean, there's, you know, there's that old uh, line about Italian unification. Um, we've uh, we've made Italy. Now we must make the Italians. Um, and it seems that if the if the Europeans um, have been made, then then they've only been half made, or or, or something like this, um, and um, and even at the level of the seemingly most uh, cosmopolitan of European elites, there there still seems to be this kind of schizophrenic outlook where the the interests of the individual nation states and and the EU uh, don't really uh, properly align. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think I mean. I'm sure it's cultural, but I mean, I wouldn't want to play the cultural off against the economic or the political. There's a complex of factors at play here. Um, and and one of the things that really struck me um, is, the, is, the, is the very fateful coincidence uh, in 08 of, um, you know, the struggle to deal with the fallout from the debacle of the European Constitution in 2005, uh, which was turned down by French and Dutch referenda, and left, of all people, Angela Merkel in the first phase of her chancellorship, struggling to patch together a European uh, new constitution for Europe, which was never going to be a constitution, it would be a treaty. And that treaty is the Lisbon Treaty, and the treaty, the Lisbon Treaty re-enshrines um, the primacy of the European nation-state, of the sovereign nation-state, precisely at the moment that the financial crisis is coming over the horizon. And then in 2009, an absolutely fundamental judgment by the German Supreme Court, by the German Constitutional Court, reaffirms this, that there must be no steps beyond the German nation state until there can be proper democratic accountability at the European level. In other words, setting a very high bar uh, for uh, Merkel's governments in subsequent years in agreeing to steps towards greater integration of European uh, economic and financial policy. So, you know, if, if within that term, culture is the entire politics of the law and constitutional law, which is very important um, in this story. And so, the very last thing in the face of that that Merkel um, presiding over the coalition that she does, particularly with the FDP, the liberal, the more nationalist uh, liberal party in Germany, from 
uh, the fall of 2009. The very last thing that she's going to agree to is you know, some sort of ad hoc extension of the power of Brussels. Um, this has been ruled out by the German Constitutional Court. They've said so far and no further until you've got much more fundamental principles sorted out. Um, and I would add this as one of the key elements in the problem of coordination is that Merkel just doesn't, is not, she, you know, is not secure in her domestic political base. She is not the political powerhouse that, you know, she seemed before the refugee crisis of 2015. That's an effect of the period between 13 and 15 that she acquires that kind of aura of invincibility. Um, but um, uh, that is not her position. Um, in 2009-10 as the crisis strikes. And a, a really quite fundamental set of decisions have been made uh, at the EU level uh, by way of the Lisbon Treaty and at the German national level by way of the Lisbon Ortile, the Lisbon Judgment of 2009, uh, which really enshrined the nation state as the basic, as the basic, as the basic uh, you know, player in the constitutional game of the EU. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. You can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you really like the show, please do consider donating to the Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash Poll Theory Other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.